Recovery Elevator, episode 222. I can't do anything else. I can't moderate. It's impossible for me to moderate. The only solution is to stop. And something clicked inside of me. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Ryan. He's 35 years old from Sacramento, California, and he's been sober for 90 days. In the interview, he talks about how he knew he was going to quit drinking, but he didn't know how. In this interview, I speak about the how being much less important than you'd think. It's a great interview, and you guys are going to love Ryan. Real quick. Thai food is the best, like a Thai curry chicken, unbelievable. That combined with soda water with a splash of crayon, eureka. Oh, hey, I also want to mention Recovery Elevator is doing a trip to Thailand. Well, lots of Thai chicken curry there and Cambodia next January 20th to the 31st, 2020. Go to recoveryelevator.com for more info. There are 25 available spaces and registration opens June 1st. And before we get any further, let's hear from ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. At ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. Go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R. ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, let's get started. In the wonderful game of ice hockey, go Colorado Avalanche, you've got three positions. Forward, defenseman, and a goalie. Since I play defenseman on my rec league hockey team, I'm obviously going to make a case how defense is the most important position on the ice, but they, in reality, are all equally important and have the same amount of authority. Oh yeah, and in case you're wondering, my rec hockey team, the MT Netters, lost in the semifinal this year to the Wombats, and again, I'm sure several of you guys were scouring the internet for the results of this highly interesting hockey league, so that's it. So just like hockey, in the unfuck yourself process from alcohol, you've got three major players or positions. However, they're not equally distributed in weight and importance. These major players are the mind, the body, and the breath. But I like to call this the 20-40-40 rule because that's where we should allocate the importance to the three of these major players. Guys, this one, this episode, this concept, this is important. When I first got sober, it was more like the 100-0-0 approach where I relied fully on the mind the same organ that got me into this predicament in the first place. I experienced a significant wobble in early sobriety, and this was the reason why. I relied on the mind, which again, tried to think itself out of the problem that it got itself into. And you've heard me say on this podcast before that knowledge alone is not enough to quit drinking. And I fully agree, and here's why. The mind cannot solve this problem. You're asking the mind a question about the mind, 
And unconsciously, the mind has been trying to solve this problem, which is to fill the internal void with an external substance called alcohol. And that's the best solution it's come up with the whole time through all this incessant thinking. That's the best solution it can come up with to use the external substance called alcohol to fill the internal void. So that's why the mind can't solve this problem. That's okay. This is good news. We've got an answer to this. Oh, and for all you Game of Thrones fans out there, and I'm loving this new season, this would be equivalent to the shield, the sword, and the armor, with the shield being the mind. If we're kicking ass in battle, the shield should be supplemental. All right, so let's unpack this a little more. Uh, we do need to use the mind. This is correct. But again, a big reason why we can't use the mind is the mind dwells in the past and incessantly plays out future scenarios, which are just that future scenarios that will never take place in the now. So the mind will incessantly pulse in the past and future, but the true inoculation to alcohol is located in the present moment where we don't use the mind. So the mind will pulse in the past, in the future, but the true inoculation to alcohol is located in the present moment, which is where the mind doesn't want to be. Again, this is okay. Let's just reprioritize where we use the mind. So how should we use the mind? Well, we can use it to play the tape forward. That's a great strategy you've heard me talk about on this podcast. That's when we do get a craving. Occasionally, we can play the tape forward and irrationally think, so, well, the last 50 times I told myself I was going to have just one drink, it ended up being a complete dumpster fire every time. So it's probably not going to be just one drink. You can use the mind to get in the car and meet another alcohol-free person at a coffee shop. Use the mind to get on your smartphone and find out where a yoga class is or go in a meetup group, a running group, and go meet some friends and go for a jog. You can use the mind to practice mindfulness. Okay, that was an easy one. But most importantly, this is where I want to use the mind. Basically, 20% of the 20-40-40 rule is use the mind as a radar to scan the body. Again, do not use the mind to solve this problem called addiction to alcohol. It doesn't work. And this should come as a relief. Okay, so here's what we're going to do with the body. The body will never lie. You might have recently had an argument with Susan at work, and you'll say, you know what, water under the bridge, I'm over it, no big deal, peace, I'm out. And this may be true, but the next time you see Susan talking to Brian in the accounting department, your body might tell you something different. In another scenario, the mind might be saying, I've gone three weeks without alcohol, I got this. You already know how I feel about those three words. And the body will confirm this if you've got this or you don't. My personal experience with this, uh, when I'm saying I got this, the body always confirmed that I didn't got it. So your body is the unconscious mind, a direct reflection of the subconscious part of the mind. If you want to make a lasting changes, get memos past the analytical part of the mind to the subconscious, then it must be done through the body. This is where the most important role of the mind comes into play. The mind will locate in the body where the energetic mass has accumulated. For myself, 90% of the time, this is in the stomach or the solar plexus area, and occasionally in my right shoulder in the back. These can be blockages, pain bodies, as Eckhart Tolle would say, stored past traumas and unhealthy thought patterns, all of which the body will tell you where they are, and you're going to use the mind to locate them in the body. So once we have located where in the body this quickening is taking place, get in your fighter jet called the breath and start building circuits in this area. Breathe into this area. If it's an overall sense of anxiety throughout the entire body, take a seat and just breathe. This should be good news, guys. If you're experiencing intense anxiety, and I know I did after binges, and it seemed like it would go on forever, 
Just breathe. I think Faith Hill has a song about that. Just breathe. <laughs> this isn't a take a couple deep breaths and then get to work thinking how to assuage the inner trepidation, but no, just breathe and don't stop. Use the mind to find the coordinates of the discourse in the body. Then use your mind and body to focus all attention on this region in the body. Next, insert your omnipresent connection to source called breath, and that's how it's done. If I ever write a second book, it's going to be on this entire topic. This stuff is fascinating. I've had asthma my entire life. As a kid, I was hospitalized several times. I was on a nebulizer, several drug medications. I was on asthma studies as a kid, and I've been on a, a drug called Advair and Albuterol. Advair is expensive shit. Thank you, healthcare industry. It's about 150 bucks a month. And so, uh, yeah, I've had asthma my, my entire life. But about 10 months ago, I went for a run, and I, and, I, and, I, and I focused where I was feeling the asthma in my body, and it was on my back and my right lung. And mid-run, I stopped on a bench, and I just located it in the body. I used the mind. The body showed the mind of where it was, and I focused on it. And I started breathing circuits and the breathing through this blockage through up, up it and down it, up it and down it. And I did this for like 10 runs, right? And then after that, every time I felt my lungs quickening, I would do the same. So I know this sounds weird and I don't want to jump the gun, but I haven't filled the asthma prescription in five months. I don't think I have asthma anymore. I, again, this is weird for me even to say because it was a role. It was an identity. And when I did have the quickening of the bronchial tubes, I, I, I was able to locate it and say, what's the environment? What's around me? And it, it was exercise induced, but it also showed up in similar times and similar scenarios. And so through this breathing, so using the body and the breath as the two major players and eliminating the mind, I, again, I don't want to jump the gun here, but I don't have asthma and check this out. On my hockey team, <laughs> we played a tournament in Billings, Montana. Thank you, train. I hear the train coming by. Listeners, that's just part of the part of the podcast. Um, we had a hockey tournament in Billings, Montana at an Airbnb. On the last day, I walked out, and, and in like the mudroom where our shoes were, there was a kitty litter box, right? I've got major allergies to cats and horses, and this was the first time. Now, now the cat wasn't in the house, right? But usually this doesn't matter. Usually cats, I can tell within five minutes walking to a place. And saying, oh my God, there's a cat here. It's not here. That's fine. There's still hair everywhere. It doesn't matter if the cat's physically present or not. This is the first time that I wasn't affected by it. Um, again, I don't want to jump the gun, right? I don't want to say I, I no longer have cats, allergies to cats, or no longer have asthma. This is weird stuff to me too. It's foreign. I've done some research on this stuff. And Western medicine doesn't know where asthma comes from. They still have no idea. Next up, guys, is horses. Seriously. I love horses, but I'm definitely allergic to horses. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm seriously thinking, well, this is kind of a joke, but... Um, I might book a week at a dude ranch, breathe some circuits in my lungs with my allergies. And yeah, I'll let you know on Instagram how that plan works out. <laughs> uh, all right. 20, 40, 40 rule detach from the mind, the body and the breath. Those are your two major players. You're going to use the body to show the mind where to focus on the attention, use the breath, build the circuits. That's how it's done. All right. Before we hear from Ryan, let's hear from Babel. Today's sponsor is Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language with confidence. Babbel works. I'm going to a wedding at the end of June this summer in Brazil, and guess what? Eu falo português. I've been using the app the last couple weeks to learn some Portuguese, and it's super easy with Babbel. With Babbel, you can speak a new language with confidence. Choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, and German. 
Babbel is designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. Babbel's teaching method has been proven to be effective across multiple studies. Their convenient lessons are only 10 to 15 minutes long. Learn through interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. Lessons are lovingly created by over 100 language experts. They're real people, not by a translation machine. Babbel is the number one selling language learning app in the world. Try it for free by downloading the Babbel app or go to babbel.com. That's babbel.com. B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Ryan, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. Thanks for asking. How's your day going? Ryan, it is a sunny, beautiful day out here in Bozeman, Montana. The bloom is about to happen. I'm loving it. It's doing, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And Ryan, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Well, today's actually 90 days for me, so it's pretty pretty exciting. Um, and thought, uh, what better way to celebrate than have a conversation with Paul Churchill? <laughs> no, man. Two-way street. Congratulations on 90 days. I'm excited to hear how you did it, all about your journey. And But let me let me ask you just this real quick. How, how does it feel to have 90 days away from alcohol? I mean, my, my body feels great. Mentally, I feel great. It's awesome. You know, I'm not really, I haven't really been counting or focusing too much on the days. So every day just feels great. Yeah, I like that. When I asked you, when is your sobriety date? You're like, you know, I don't know. I just know today is day 90. <laughs> I love it. It's all different. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, I think, you know, in the early days, I was probably really counting down, like get to, you know, a week, get to two weeks, get to 30 days and, you know, using, you know, sobriety apps and, you know, I still get the notification and, you know, but it pops up in the morning or it pops up at five o'clock and I'm like, oh, that was, that was actually pretty easy. I didn't think about drinking or think about not drinking, you know, every second of fighting the day, white knuckling it through or anything like that. Yeah, it's nice when the sobriety time just starts to log. You wake up and say, wait, a week just went by, two weeks went by. But I do remember the time when I was fighting to just get 24 hours, first 72 hours. And we're going to talk more about that with, with your story. Um, but before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, Ryan. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, no, definitely. So I'm I'm from Northern California. Uh, most recently moved to Sacramento a year ago from San Francisco. So I've kind of bounced around different parts of California for work. I'm in enterprise sales for a large software company. I'm 35 years old, married, actually got married last year, and no kids as of yet. I'd say for fun, I like to do a lot of things, but it probably starts with anything outdoors. So I'm a big snowboarder. I love hiking, running. I'm in the process of doing a half marathon kind of training. So I've done a marathon before and I go to the gym a lot and recently got into some rock climbing. So like I said, anything outdoors. And then I'd say that the other thing on top of that is, you know, I'm definitely an extrovert. So I get a lot of energy from, from talking to others and hanging out with people and friends. So it's a lot to, to keep me active. Yeah, and you mentioned you like to go snowboarding. Where do you go out there? Do you do a Tahoe, or was it Squaw Valley close to that area? Yeah, so I have a, yeah, so I have a season pass, actually, to Squaw Valley. So they do this new thing called the Icon Pass, which is pretty cool, because I get Squaw Valley and Alpine Meadows, which is, you know, from my, my place here in Sacramento, it's under two hours to get to, and my family has a cabin in Lake Tahoe. So we're about 15 minutes from those resorts. Did a trip out to Mammoth this year, which was cool. So yeah, I, you know, I think I've gotten this season, I've done 16 days 
but wow. it's gonna we're gonna be we're gonna be snowboarding through Fourth of July. So uh, I'm gonna get some good spring days in here in the next few few months. Yeah, like how you saying you're getting pulled out in nature, snowboarding, running, and that was the same thing with myself, especially in early sobriety. I was just I was being pulled outside, and I healed outside in nature, especially the first thirty and sixty days. It was it was awesome. And so, give listeners background about your drinking, Ryan. Perhaps talk about your drinking habits when you started, when you first realized that it might be time to leave alcohol behind. Yeah, you know, so I think I had my first drink probably when I was around fourteen years old you know i had kind of fought it before then i have a twin brother who you know he had actually kind of started a little bit earlier and i just you know i I was still kind of at that point where i you know i kind of resisted it so i'd say you know through high school you know i was you know i played sports you know i was captain of the football team track team i had good grades you know 4.0 student so i wouldn't say that you know drinking really controlled me although we did really you know i couldn't wait to drink you know until the weekends i'd say it really ramped up in college I went to college down in Santa Barbara, UCSB, which is a big, big party school. Yeah, it was one of the reasons I, I, <laughs> one of the reasons I wanted to go there. It was on the beach and, you know, drinking. And so, yeah, you know, I, that's really where it ramped up. You know, I ended up joining a, a fraternity, you know, and I was, you know, I was even in that house, you know, I was always, always the guy that you could count on to, you know, do the crazy stuff and, you know, party hard. But, you know, I was, I was having fun. You know, ran into a few issues here and there, and I'm sure we'll get, you know, more into that. But I think, you know, when I when I look back, the the big thing that I've come to realize is that, you know, it ramped up in college, but then it just never stopped when I got out of college. And I think, you know, living in, you know, I've lived in San Diego, San Francisco, I spent some time in Tahoe as a snowboard instructor, and I think it just continued to follow me. I was still partying like... I was, uh, you know, a frat guy in college more times than I wanted, even when, you know, there'd be moments where, you know, I'd be good during the week or, you know, I, I wouldn't have issues with, you know, drinking. But then all of a sudden, boom, next thing you know, I'm blacking out again and, you know, acting like I'm 20 living in Santa Barbara in a frat house. Yeah. And Ryan, let me ask you this. You mentioned it ramped up in college and it never really stopped. Now, when did you first become privy to the, with the process of what was happening and say, wait a second, there, you know, there's writing on the wall. When did you start to realize that alcohol was kind of a problem? That's tricky, right? Because I think you always, you know, I always realized it was a problem when, you know, the next day I, I couldn't remember anything from the night before, and but neither could your friends and you're making jokes about it. I'd say the first time I really, like, it became, like, I knew this was a real problem was when I was around 21, and I, I woke up in the hospital with, and they told me I had a, a .39 blood alcohol Whoa. level, and that somebody had called, the, you know, an, an ambulance. And, and I bet it probably wasn't the only time that I had gotten, you know, to that point. So I think that's when I really recognized it was a problem. You know, but but kind of I've done a lot of like self-reflection over the last 90 days. And it's I think the the issue we talk about the word problem. I mean, it can mean so many different things. And for me, the problem in my mind was the problem was that I was blacking out. And, you know, I couldn't you know, I kept always trying to address that problem. And, and, And I think that's where where and why it kind of continued for the next 14, 15 years. You mentioned the word tricky earlier, and I agree 100%. It is tricky. Even when I was blacking out five to seven times per week when I owned the bar in Granada, Spain, 
at the time I still didn't realize it was a problem, right? I kind of thought blacking out was the problem, just like you said, and I put all these rules into place to uh, prevent me from blacking out, but still five to seven nights per week was a norm. And eventually, uh, fortunately I was a functioning <laughs> drinker when it blacked out, I'd wake up the next morning, my covers, everything would be just fine. Cell phone wall on the table. So I kind of, there was some acceptance around that, but that's why this is tricky, Ryan, is because we're always late to the dance. We're late to recognizing the issues that have been presenting themselves for so long. And so in your 20s, Ryan, was there a specific moment where you decided to take action in regards to your drinking? No, I don't, I don't think so, honestly. I think in my 20s, I still felt like, well, now I'm in my 20s and you know, I'm, 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 having, I'm having fun. You know, I think you mentioned functioning, right? Like I think the problem that kind of really came to my attention was just the fact that like I was functioning. I was, you know, I was successful. I was growing a, a career and even in moments when I would fail, I'd get back up. Right. And so I was exactly what you talk about, a you know, a functioning drinker, problem drinker. You know, I don't really like the, the word alcoholic because I don't know that we need to necessarily put labels on the issue is that there's a problem that, that needs to be addressed. So I didn't really, I, you know, I didn't really try anything in my twenties other than to try to put rules in place. Like we always talk about and tried to not drink during the week, or I tried to stop drinking liquor. Right. But I never really wanted to stop. Right. I just wanted to stop blacking out. And so when did you realize the point that stop blacking out wasn't an option? And then you probably were exploring, well, alcohol is causing the blackouts. So then maybe I'm going to take one step further back and address the alcohol. Did that happen in your early 30s? You know, it, it's hard to say. I, I don't think I ever really had the realization that quitting was on the table until 90 days ago. Quitting was never really something that went through my head. I'd be like, oh, I wish I could quit. And then maybe I'd Google a, a couple things and listen. But I, there wasn't a shift in my mind that said, hey, you're going to try to quit. Right. I would just basically, all right, I'm going to take a break. Right. Or I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a few days off, a week off. And then I would just get back into kind of that cycle. I'd say, you know, one different aspect of my story is, you know, right around when I was, I think I was 29 years old. Yeah. I got diagnosed with type one diabetes and I was really sick and I went into the hospital you know, I lost 55 pounds and a lot of, you know, just like people don't know much about alcoholics, a lot of people don't understand a lot about type 1 diabetes. And I see a lot of, of similarities there as well. But I think that was probably the first moment where I was like, wait a second, am I going to ever be able to drink again? But it wasn't like, hey, I want to stop drinking. I need to stop drinking. Now I have this, you know, chronic illness. It was more like, will I be able to drink again versus like I should stop. Now, part of my ignorance with type one diabetes, does alcohol play a factor in that? You know, your diet plays a factor in it. It's not, so the difference between kind of type one and type two is extreme, right? So type one diabetes is what most people rem remember back in the day is calling juvenile diabetes. So you used to get it, you know, by the time you were 18, and so, you know, for myself, like I've always been a healthy person. I exercise, you know, five times a week. I eat healthy. So, you know, there's no correlation to alcohol and causing type 1. They actually don't know what, what triggers the onset. But once I actually, you know, had the disease, because what type 1 diabetes is, is your pancreas basically stops working. It doesn't produce insulin. 
whereas type 2 di- diabetics, those are typically what you think of, you know, a lot of times people may have an unhealthy diet, they don't exercise, it's usually, you know, onset happens, you know, in your late 50s and 60s. It's the comparison that I always think about in my head is like, we think about alcoholics as living under a bridge, drinking out of brown bags, right? Like to me, that's kind of, you know, how I was, everyone thinks about diabetics as being overweight and, you know, doing all these things to themselves. But sometimes there's another side to that story. And, you know, that's kind of the the type one life. And so, you know, going back to your question about, you know, how is it affected? Well, anytime I eat carbs, I, I need to take insulin. And so I did notice once I had that onset, once I started drinking again, the beers and carbs would affect it and make it go up. You know, liquor could drastically make it go down and then you have low blood sugar. So, you know, now that I'm a type one diabetic, like it definitely was something that I had to then account for, you know, in my daily life as well. I've read several articles linking alcohol with type two diabetes. I just wasn't certain about the link with type one. Now, 90 days ago, was there a rock bottom moment? Because it sounds like we're approaching a a spontaneous sobriety, which some people call it, where you just wake up, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you, you leave it behind. Or, or was, there like, was there like an internal bloom or like this internal feeling that you knew that something was going to change, you wake up, and then that's it. Talk to us about what happened 90 days ago. I'm super curious. Yeah, I, I think more than anything, it was definitely a sick and tired of being sick and tired but it also, you know, was, I, I, I think, you know, my wife played a big role into that. So, you know, it was, you know, I had a work trip in Vegas, right? So what could go wrong? <laughs> and honestly, you know, you know, the first couple of nights, I, I actually, you know, in my mind, I had it together, right? So I didn't black out. I controlled my drinking, you know, I, but I was white knuckling it every night and then making sure that, you know, then I went to bed by, by midnight because I had stuff the next day. And, and, you know, now it's easier to get the perspective. But then that last night, I just kind of let it be the last night, you know, and kind of go all the way, you know, to my old habits as if I was on a bachelor party. You know, and, and I always hear people talk about, well, in my profession, in my profession, well, it's, it's the same in cells because it's the same everywhere. But everybody likes to drink. Right? You're in Vegas. You're drinking with all of your colleagues, your coworkers. One thing leads to another. It's a big party event. I ended up, you know, blacking out that night. You know, lost my phone, lost my credit cards. You know that, you know, your dignity for no reason. Like I don't, I just don't, I don't even know what I did. And so I just had that just awful anxiety. Then the next day, my wife couldn't get a hold of me. She was freaking out, and you know, I, I, I didn't truly understand how scared she was for me until I got home. And so, you know, the realization was really the fact that, like, she was scared that, like, I could have died, that I could have, like, something bad could have happened. And I just, she's talked to me about it before, but I never understood what I was putting her through when I went out with my friends or when I went on these work trips. Everywhere else, she kind of knew I'd be good. But for some reason, I get in certain interactions and I go back back to like you know being that that 21 year old again and so to me that was the realization that you know no like I I could have died I there's been plenty of moments in the past where somehow I didn't you know my friends often make jokes about it but you know there's been scary situations and at that point I I don't know what it was but I was able to look at her 
and I was able to look in myself and, and I just said, I can't do anything else. I can't moderate. It's impossible for me to moderate. The only solution is to stop. And something clicked inside of me, thankfully. Like I, like I said, I never had it really kind of clicked. And once it clicked, then I just took action and I just, I just went all in. I'm the type of guy that like right now I'm training for a marathon. Once I started doing marathon training, like I'm, I'm running, I'm, you know, I did 10 miles on Monday, right? At a pretty fast pace. Once I go all in, I'm all in. And yeah, luckily for me, it, it clicked. Ryan, it sounds like you had a moment of surrender, which listeners go back a couple episodes ago and I talk about surrender. It doesn't have to be a nebulous subject. It's simply turning the internal no to a yes, recognizing the internal external signs that something needs to change. And if you're listening to this podcast right now, that thing that needs to change is most likely alcohol. And as soon as that conduit is open, that window of opportunity for that, those messages to get from the conscious, the unconscious mind, which we get those and they become more frequent the more we drink and it, they'll, they'll continue to show up. So it's not like a one mode of surrender, but it sounds like that's what happened. It's an incredible thing because then you, that's when we stop moving upstream. We start going downstream with it and life starts to work with us, with us, not against us because now we're going in the direction that the universe wants us to go. And I love how you mentioned how this happened in Vegas. Looking back, Vegas has been a, a, a Zen master teacher for me. I've been there several times sober. I've also been there several times drunk. I've been in that environment sober in early sobriety, and it was difficult. White and knuckling, it is hard. But what's even more hard is being in that environment while drinking and trying to keep it tied together. That's even more painful. And I remember one morning I woke up, you know, blacked out the night before, and I knew that, <laughs> that I had to check my back pocket. I looked at my back pocket. And I bought a bottle. It was like 450 bucks with another $100 tip on it, $550 for bottle service. I don't even remember the bottle. I don't even know if I had any of it. And Vegas has just been a great teacher for me to know that it's time to move forward in life without alcohol. And, and so what was it like, Ryan, when you, when you got back from Vegas? It's beautiful how, you, you, how you, you, your, your wife had helped you in this decision, helped you move forward in life without alcohol. But talk to us about the first week, the first month. How was it? You know, it was, it was great. I felt empowered, you know, and I just, I, I knew I was going to do it. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I was definitely scared, but I knew I was going to do it because I, I made that decision. So I'd say, you know, there's a couple things, you know, about the, the first week or two, you know, I've, I've, I've done a week off. I've done two weeks off, you know, that's always like to prove it to yourself, you know, but the difference is that was, you know, I was always looking forward to when I could drink again and white knuckling it. And, you know, again, I just had this, this shift. And so first and foremost, I, I mean, my, my wife is amazing. And, you know, first thing out of her mouth was like, I'll, I'll quit with you. And, and so that's been, uh, you know, a great support person to have. And it's, you know, I, I, I was listening to another podcast, not about alcohol. And they say, you know, within marriage, you, you know, you either grow together or you grow apart. And, you know, we've talked about that, that a lot it really allowed us to grow together. But my first steps, that was it. Next was, you know, I picked up, we went on Amazon and grabbed Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Stop Drinking. She got Annie Grace's This Neck in Mind. Alan Carr's book was great. I read it in a couple of days and just, it was like, I was, I was reading things that I was just like, whoa, I, 
yeah, alcohol is shit, you know, like you always say, I don't need it. It's it's controlling. So, you know, the the first week was a, was a little bit different. You know, I think that weekend I was still hung over, you know, so I was, you know, we, we had an easy, you know, I had actually gotten back from Vegas on a Friday, which is kind of interesting. So, you know, we had a weekend of, of relaxing and, and kind of, you know, not really doing too much. But, you know, once I got through the, the first week and, you know, you get the alcohol out of the system, it's just always been an opportunity. I'm just looking at all the opportunities that, that this brings to me. And, you know, that first, I think the first day I, I wrote a, a, you know, not a letter, but just kind of, you know, wrote out like, hey, like, I'm thinking about all the problems that alcohol has caused me. Like, where else in life? could you think of something where all you had to do was stop doing one thing and the rest of your life improves, right? You get more money, you're healthier, your career is going to grow. Like, I mean, I just started listing out all the opportunities and all the things that I was going to get. And I sat there and I couldn't come up with anything that I was truly giving up other than the poison and my alter ego, who goes by Ed, which is, you know, part of my middle name, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, Ryan, this has been true for me and with so many others, and it sounds like it's true for you. Removing alcohol is the one domino that knocks all the others down. It's incredible. And I love how you said we, we as me and my wife went to Amazon. It's crucial we bring others, especially loved ones, people that are close to us in our lives, in on this journey, how we went to Amazon and we digest this material together and we are moving forward in life together without alcohol. It's awesome. It's so cool. Whether she drinks or not, but you get the point. And I love how you said earlier is like, you knew you had to quit drinking, but you didn't know how, right? That's a huge issue. I get emails all the time saying, I know I need to quit drinking. I just don't know how. Well, I'm going to relieve a lot of pressure and stress on listeners and for, for myself and for you, for all future goals. The how is not important. The why is the only thing that matters. And it sounds like you just wrote it down on paper, right? The why I'm doing this, why I want to move forward in life without alcohol. Uh, The subconscious brain of yours got the memo in Vegas. It got the why. And the how always solves itself if the why is definitively clear. Now, Ryan, I've got this idea in my brain. I've had it for over a year. I had previously had this idea for about five years out. Then I went to four, then went to three, then went to two, and then I went to what's happening now. And that is I'm going to be opening or looking for a retreat center, most likely in, in Costa Rica, Mexico, Southeast Asia. And again, there's a huge how. It's like, how the hell am I going to pull this off? First off, I might be moving. It's scary. How the hell is this all going to work? And I keep reminding myself the how it doesn't even matter. It's just the why. And I can't get the why out of my head because I know why I'm doing this. I've got an idea for a, a healing center, for a, conne- a connection center that's going to build the, the heart and soul connection, the connection with the other humans, with the earth, with the land, etc. So there's a huge how in my life right now as well, Ryan, but it doesn't really matter. The why is what's most important. And I'm so glad you're seeing that. And what are some of the big things you've learned in the past 90 days without alcohol, Ryan? Yeah, you know, I've just learned to be more present, more more mindful. You know, when you talk about the, the how and the why, you know, the, the why is important and the why is going to be different for everyone. It's different for my wife and, you know, it's different for me, right? And, and I think, you know, she even struggled with her why because at first she was stopping drinking for for me right and then you know she ran into well you know 
talking about it. And eventually she's come to understand her why. And, and I think this is part of me just being more mindful is understanding these things. And, you know, you talk just like you talked about a lot of these hows, like there's not there's not one way to do something. So you can't think you can't focus on the how you're going to do something. You fo- like you said, you got to focus on on the why and then just take action The how you'll figure it out. And I think these are the types of things that I'm I'm kind of realizing in sobriety that I that I just I wasn't in a position to be present. There was always just that constant, whether it's anxiety or constant just future form of trying to you know think about that next moment of of drinking. And I didn't look at it as like I can't wait for my next drink. But when I look back, I, I kind of was, you know. And so. Yeah, I, I think that I've, I've really just learned that I'm still the I'm still the same person. I'm just the good person that I was, and I got rid of the the worst parts of me that was never who I was in the first place. You know, we aren't our our thought. I've just been you know doing some meditation, some more yoga. I'm reading. You know, I read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm reading. Eckhart Tolle and he talks a lot about the ego and so you know I'm just I'm just I'm learning a lot and I'm just allowing myself to take on new perspectives and understand that I am not my thoughts Ryan there's a lot to unpack there (laughs) I love how you said that I, I just did an episode and it might even match up with this one because uh, I'll record them all separately. But it's we first must find out who we aren't before we find out who we are. And you just said that parts of you were going, you were finding out who you no longer were. And this is incredible. It's a beautiful part of the journey because because space needs to be created first before new the you know the new life patterns can can emerge. And you also, one more thing about the how, this is where it can be a little confusing because the how will always emerge, but the mind isn't going to be the one to figure it out. The body is going to tell us the how 90% of the time, right? So the body is going to get a message. And if the mind listens to that message, most likely through emotions, that's how we find out the how. So it isn't the mind that gets the pings. It's the body that gets the pings of how the how is going to unfold. It's, it's incredible incredible process that I find so fascinating. And Ryan, I, w- I want to chat with you a little bit about the why. Do you, do you have any reflection on why you drank? Yeah, that's been a hard, that's been a hard one for sure. You know, because I'm sure there's lots of reasons and, but they just always sound like excuses. And so the more I look back at it, you know, as I, you know, I look at kind of the correlation and, you know, I, I ramped up in college and, I think it has has something to do with the ego, which, you know, Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about. I think it really is a sense of identification. And, you know, growing up, I was, you know, an athlete. I had, I, you know, I had 4.0. Like I, you know, I identified with that. And then I went to college and I, I, I could no longer truly identify with that. I feel like I, I tried to identify that, you know, by – by joining the fraternity that was a bunch of athletes, you know, but we weren't playing any sports anymore. We were drinking. Right? So <laughs> drinking was our, drinking was our sport. Sure. You know, it was the first time that I was away from, you know, my, my twin brother, which, you know, was more of a, we were very competitive. And so it wasn't like, Oh, I missed him. It was like, Oh, I get to be my own self. How do I want to build that identity? 
Um, and for some reason for me, that identity just, you know, became this fun, crazy social guy. And I, I really think that was the why rather than trying to think about bad moments and think about, you know, all the bad shit that's happened in my life, because those are, those to me are possibly underlying issues, but those are excuses. And and when I really look at it, it, it's the ego in me that, you know, wanted to identify with something and then the ego just got trapped and didn't know where else to go. Ryan, we get a lot of work done when we use the word protective personality, but that's also the ego. And listeners, I highly recommend listening to A Power of Now or A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle because he does a fantastic job of explaining what the ego does because it serves a purpose. It does. It creates roles, identities for us to feel comfortable living on this planet. And there is no such thing as ego disillusionment. What we want to do is reprioritize the ego. And Ryan, I associated a lot with what you just said because my ego was, was running the show 100%. It was running the show 100% long into sobriety, which it took me a while to figure that out. Um, but now it's, it's, it's been a, a more pleasurable journey with the ego <laughs> reprioritized, not so much as number one, but maybe around three or four in my life. You know, and Ryan, what, what's on your bucket list in sobriety? Yeah, and you know, before I cover up the bucket list, I will also recommend Oprah's, you know, I forget soulful yeah. conversations or something. She does she does one with Eckhart Tolle where Absolutely. they actually review chapter chapter by chapter. But as far as kind of my my bucket list, you know, I, I don't I don't have a an actual bucket list. Like I don't have these lists of things that I need to accomplish or I want to get done. I'm just taking action in the moment whenever I want to do something. Focus on the actions and not the results. <laughs> Love it. Is there anything you would have done differently while getting sober? I just would have done it sooner. Yeah, it's a common response. And Ryan, what's the biggest obstacle you've encountered in the last 90 days? Yeah, this one's an interesting one because I, I've heard other people talk about uh, talk about it. And it's honestly, it's been telling people. Like I, you know, I've actually done really well, uh, in these first 90 days, it's, it's been great. And, you know, I don't think it's a, it, I don't think it's what they define as the pink cloud or anything like that, but the hardest part is, has been telling people, but to actually clarify, it's not the actual doing of, of it. It's the anxiety and thinking about what they're going to say before you tell them, you know, once you actually tell them, I mean, the, anyone that's a, a good friend, the, the most common response is, wow, I'm proud of you. Not what happened, not what's wrong, not why, just, hey, I'm, I'm really proud of you. Ryan, I absolutely love it. And when we burn the ships, 99% of the time that's the response is, wow, nice job. Let me know how we can help. And occasionally someone's going to start asking questions. And that's where I would get defensive at first. But what they're doing, they're asking questions either for themselves Questions like, well, how much did you drink? Like, what, what did it look like? Did, it was a rock bottom moment. They're asking questions for themselves or for a loved one. And the third, which I don't even think I've encountered this yet, is someone who's just not on board. And someone who's not on board, those people have to go. And I don't say have to go, but uh, again, the how. This is part of the how. You, you said it earlier, Ryan. You either grow together or you grow apart. And it's important to just let that process unfold and not to fight, to fight this process uh, as, as it happens. Uh, and Ryan, we've reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, let's go. Ryan, number one, worst memory from drinking. 
Yeah, I thought I thought long and hard about this one, but there's no worse. <laughs> there's just lots of really bad memories, you know, from being in the drunk tank to hospitals to passing out in random places. Like I mentioned before, it, it's all bad, and, and I could have died multiple times. And I think admitting that is is how I stay sober. Now, did you have an oh shit moment where you're like, okay, this has got to go? Uh, oh shit, yes. I'm not sure this has got to go. I think when I went to the hospital my senior year with that .39 BAC, I was like, oh shit, I have I have a problem. Ryan, you got 90 days. How are you going to get 100, 120? What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I, I don't have a true plan. I think that's part of the plan. You know, it's not that I'm focused on just being, fo you know, sober. I'm focused on being the best version of myself, and that just happens to include sobriety. So, you know, one day at a time seems to be everyone's mantra because it's true. So I'm just I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, and you know, if I need to evolve, I'll evolve. But right now, I'm just continuing to to practice mindfulness through meditation, yoga, exercise, and you know, being open and honest, you know, with my friends and my wife. Ryan, all answers to that question are perfect, but I love your response. The next question, what is your favorite resource in recovery? Honestly, this podcast and and my wife, you know, I'm I'm, I'm really lucky to to have her as part of this this journey and I, I don't take that for granted. Yeah, hey, Ryan, thanks for listening, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, um, of course. I mean, thanks thanks for doing this. <laughs> I love it. You get to chat with guys like you. This is a good time. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, I'm not sure if I received this advice directly, but, you know, the way that I have come to interpret it is really just, you know, don't let the past dictate your future um, because the past version of yourself doesn't exist anymore. Right? Like, you don't behave as a child because you aren't a child anymore. You know, you don't like the same things you did when you were 12, so why blame yourself for, you know, all the bad drunken moments that happened in the past? Move on and, and be better and live in the present. That's kind of like the whole character defects thing that's talked about in the, in the rooms of 12 steps. I, I, I don't like to focus on my character defects. I already know what they are, right? That's what brought me here. I'd rather move forward and focus on what's working. So I love what you said there. Next question. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? I'd say stop worrying about if you're an alcoholic or not. Who, who cares about the labels? Like ask yourself, does drinking cause you to have problems in any part of your life? And if so, then it's a problem, and you can fix that problem by not drinking. Like, start there, and then focus on self-improvement. Like, you'd be amazed on what you can accomplish once you burn the ship. Identities, roles, labels, according to Eckhart Tolle, don't serve us any good. And before we depart, Ryan, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic if line. Yeah, you know, you might be an alcoholic if you refuse to listen to someone's story about sobriety because you don't actually want to quit drinking alcohol. You just want all the problems of alcohol to magically go away. <laughs> Sounds about right. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I want to talk to you guys for a second about Tiger Woods. Despite what you think of the guy, I know he's had some controversial off the golf course issues. We're going to put that aside because this is an addiction podcast. He's had a rough go with addiction. So in 2017, Tiger Woods was arrested for a DUI on March 27th of 2017 in the wee hours as he was found slumped at the wheel and then he later checked himself into rehab shortly after. Woods also entered rehab in 2010 for painkillers, benzos, and Ambien. He has gone through the ringer with addiction. 
And in this podcast, we want to celebrate wins, and he had a huge one. Earlier this year in April, Tiger wins the major, which ends an 11-year gap from his last major win. Regardless of what you think of the guy, this is a huge win for himself, and he's showing us that we can move forward in life and leave our addictions behind. Nice job, Tiger Woods. You earned it, my man. Good job. Recovery elevator. This whole recovery thing is a lot of work, if you say so. I love you guys. <laughs>